One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, episode 45. We are on the eve of Wimbledon. It starts tomorrow and Catherine and I are in very, very different places. I'm just a few hundred yards away from the All England Club where we stay here inside a house uh, for the BBC Radio 5 Live team. Uh, Coverage from our station gets underway tomorrow from 12 o'clock and an absolutely jam-packed order of play. All the big stars in action, Federer, uh, Nadal... Andy Murray, Maria Sharapova, everybody seems to be in action on day one. One of the best order of plays we've ever had on day one of Wimbledon. Catherine, you're in a very different place altogether. Tell us where you are. I am at Edinburgh Airport, uh, departing or about to depart from a Champions Tour event up here. Oh yes, and how was it? Um, Aside from the torrential rain, which interrupted us at every possible opportunity, um, which I suppose is to be expected in this part of the world... Um, it's been very good. Um, fantastic group of players. McEnroe was here, Henman, even Isovic. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, just what the Champions Tour is about. A lot of fun, players really getting into the spirit of it. Even started wearing kilts last night. So um, yeah. Excellent. Well, that's something I've got to check out. I want to see John McEnroe in a kilt. I'm going to go on uh, on the internet straight after this to go he, and check out was, those pictures. He was trying to look nonplussed, but you could tell he was really quite enjoying it. <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. Well, that's John McEnroe in Edinburgh uh, for the ATP Champions Tour event up there. The Brodies Champions of Tennis, that was called. And uh, the first time they've ever held the event. And let's hope they have it many more years to come. Since we last spoke to you, we've also had the Aegon Championships at Queen's Club, where we were speaking to you last on the eve of that tournament. And what a turn-up that was. Andy Murray coming out after the injury he had, Catherine and winning the tournament. Great result from him and much needed as he comes into Wimbledon. Yeah, he looked in fine shape, didn't he? Um, very interesting, John McEnroe was saying this week in Edinburgh that he he actually thinks missing the French will have um, very much boosted his grass court chances. Um, and looking at him at Queen's, it's hard to argue against that. Um, certainly helped him having had so much practice on the grass. Um, yeah, and he's going to go into it feeling confident, feeling 100% at home on grass. And um, for me, he's the one to beat, I think. Wow, that's interesting. You, so you're going for, for Andy Murray as the, the victor there. Um, I should just say, we, we've got a, some special segments on the tennis podcast this week. We've got a, a, a debate with Ben Rothenberg, who presents the, the other tennis podcast, the NCR tennis podcast, about whether Grand Slam tournaments should go to best of three sets as opposed to best think, of five sets. I think sets. the word you're looking got, for 
is inferior, David, inferior tennis podcast. Oh. Well, Catherine, you said that, not me, but there we are. <laughs> let's, let's see what the listeners think. But uh, uh, fortunately, I've already recorded the, inter- the interview with Ben, so uh, I can't put that to him. Uh, so we just get con- total control of the airwaves, and, and he has to just put up with it. Maybe he can fight back on his own podcast. Uh, but uh, we've also got an interview with Nick Bollettieri, the great coach, and uh, he'll be a, a mainstay of the Five Live tennis team throughout the next couple of weeks. And what a wonderful voice he has, some great stories as well. But uh, just to, to get back to your point about Andy Murray as your favourite for the tournament, and I think John McEnroe is probably hedging his bets between both Andy Murray and Novak yeah, Djokovic, who seems to that. have the, the more favoured draw, doesn't he, in that, that bottom half of the draw, or rather the top half of the draw. But what really fascinates me, Catherine, is what Pat Cash said in the Sunday Times today. He is right behind Rafael Nadal. He thinks that the victory for, for Nadal in the French Open makes him the favourite in his eyes well that is a that is a massive prediction um, because well since the draw's been done we now know that if either Federer or Nadal are to win uh, at Wimbledon they have to beat well in, in Federer's case he would have to beat Rafa, Murray and Djokovic if the seedings pan out and in Rafa's case he'd have to beat Federer, Murray and Djokovic um, and I don't know what the stats are on when that was last done, beating three of the top four to win a slam. Uh, I wish I had them to hand, but alas, listener, I don't. Uh, but I would hazard well, we'll that that has Catherine. not been done many times, is what I would guess. No, no I, I, I think that's fair to say. And I mean, it is an interesting one, isn't it? Because, as you say, Nadal has got that in front of him. And, and Pat Cash said it straight after the French Open that he felt that this would happen, that Nadal was the favourite and he would win it. And he's repeated that in his Sunday Times column, even though he now knows the draw. He thinks Nadal is just going to blast his way through the opposition on that wave of confidence and momentum. Well, I certainly think that being seeded five will put some added fire in his belly to, to make some people look a bit silly. Not that he needs any additional fire in his belly, but I, I think that will really make him want to uh, prove that it was it was a mistake. I, I think I think that will um, really motivate him. Yeah, no, I think it will, and, and it, it is going to be a, a brilliant bottom half of the draw, isn't it? And that's all because uh, Rafael Nadal is seeded five, uh, which means that he has to face one of the other top four inside the quarter-final stages and and it looks like being Roger Federer and wouldn't it be just great just one more time Catherine to have another 2008 style matchup the one they had in the final there and the one that Ben Rothenberg who will tell us later doesn't think should be happening because that match would have been over after two hours after two sets because uh, he he doesn't think we should be having best of five at uh, Grand Slams hey Catherine why don't you just get that off your chest before we talk to Ben because uh, you're not able to speak to him directly I didn't really want to put the two of you in the same room I was worried about (laughs) what might happen so so tell us what you think my feelings well with the three options you presented are Best of three with no final set tiebreak. Best of five with no final set tiebreak, which is as it stands at the moment, everywhere apart from the US Open. Or best of five with a final set tiebreak. And I think I've, I've made my feelings very clear on a previous podcast. I think one of our Australian Open specials, um, I made my arguments about in favour of a, of, a, of a final set tiebreak. Um, but in terms of three sets in a Grand Slam, I think it's positively absurd, frankly. I mean, I haven't heard Ben's arguments. 
I wasn't there it's for the interview actually. that you did with him. He, I'm sure. I mean, he's he's an good. excellent journalist, so I'm I'm sure that he has, um, you know, compelling reasons for what he's saying. But but I think the evidence simply blows that out of the water. Frankly, the number of matches that we wouldn't have had, the number of matches that wouldn't have been classics had they only been over three sets, and it would devalue a Grand Slam hugely. And, and I also think it would make a, a Grand Slam of lesser... Im, well, a, a lesser... It would require less... I can't think... Well, I can't put how, what I'm trying to say here. At a, a Masters 1000, you have to play six three-set matches over, over the course of a week. Over a Grand Slam, yes, they're five-set matches, but you get a day off in between each match. If those became three-set ah. matches, suddenly it would actually, having a lovely day of rest in between each of your three-set matches, would make it, I think, far less of a, a physical, mental achievement than a Masters 1000, where once you're past rounds one and two, you're playing every day. Um, and I that's think a very well-put argument, Catherine. That, that's something I didn't bring up with Ben, uh, but uh, you'll hear about it uh, Well, that's shortly, great, because it means but, Ben uh, doesn't have the right of reply to that one, so I win. Yeah. Absolutely, like that. <laughs> well, anyway, it was, it was certainly good fun talking to Ben, and we, you'll hear that very shortly. Catherine, so uh, I think on the on the eve of the tournament, you're going for, for Andy Murray, uh, and you're also going for Serena Williams. We've had a bit of fun here with Serena Williams and Mira Sharapova having a bit of a falling out. Has that yeah. managed to get a, across the country to, uh, to Edinburgh? It has. Well, I mean, they are just Wimbledon, I mean, Wimbledon tennis crazy up here because of Andy Murray I mean there is there is as much interest here as in tennis as as I've known anywhere really I mean the papers today have been chocker with Wimbledon preview material um, you know the the players the Champions Tour players up here this week have been you know the, the journal, every Scottish national newspaper daily and Sunday has been out to the event to, to get you know McEnroe even as everyone's thoughts on on Wimbledon and uh, and yeah, I've I've certainly read a lot about this um, reported spat between between the women at the top. They're not doing women any favours, are they, by doing this? I mean, it was it was funny though, Catherine, particularly the way Maria Sharapova d- delivered her line uh, about uh, it. All stemmed from the fact that she didn't take too kindly to Serena Williams referencing Maria Sharapova and her relationship with Grigor Dimitrov who apparently, uh, and, and I'm into the tittle-tattle here Catherine, which you'll hate uh, apparently used to go out with Grigor Dimitrov herself No, no, I don't hate that because I, I, I'm fairly sure that's more than tittle-tattle I, I'm yeah, fairly anyway, sure that that uh, is And Sharapova very cleverly just delivered this line right at the end of her answer and said really if, uh, if Serena wants to uh, talk about personal things maybe she should talk about her own relationship uh, to a man who's divorced with two kids which was a, a pretty withering thing it's to all, say wasn't it's it it's all pretty um, low blows all round isn't it really yeah very entertaining though and they could meet in the final Catherine let's hope so eh? well that would be sensational if they did not that I'm in favour of sort of cat fighting but if it came to a Sharapova, Sharapova Serena final it would add a bit of spice wouldn't it it certainly would well Catherine we'll let you get your plane uh, which uh, will take you back to to your hometown uh, and uh, we're looking forward to Wimbledon 
It's going to be very, very much fun, I would hope, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, do tune into our coverage on BBC Radio 5 Live. We've got Nick Dolatieri, our interviewee of this week, on the team. We've got Richard Krychek, Jeff Tarango, some wonderful names from the world of tennis. And it all starts from 12 o'clock tomorrow on Monday, the first Monday of Wimbledon. But let's talk to Ben Rothenberg, presenter of the NCR podcast and also here for the New York Times. He'll write for the newspaper and for the website. And as I, as I asked him, he really was getting himself worked up. What was it all about? Well, I've, I've said for a few years now that I've, I believe that the men should at least consider playing best of three at the Grand Slams, which is something nobody really talks about that much. I mean, other, other players have talked about it, especially on the women's side. Billie Jean King has pushed for it vocally a long time, saying it would lengthen careers. And yeah, I just think that it should be the same for men and women. And other people say, oh, women should play best of five, I think. With the physicality of the game now, the much more practical solution is for men to switch to best of three. Now, what we're talking about there is a pretty serious suggestion because I put this out on Twitter an hour before we came on the show and and just asked people, you know, what what would you think? If we we took out best of five, put best of three in, you're suggesting that it would be a no tiebreak set, aren't you? Yes. So that it would roll on. So there's the difference, I suppose, between that and a a regular Masters Series tournament. So you get the difference. But people were up in arms. They were not happy (laughs) about this at all, Ben. And they reacted like I did. And they said, so suddenly you're going to lose all of these wonderful moments in history that we've had, if you think about it. Eunice Alanawi, 21-19, beaten by Andy Roddick in the fifth set of the Australian Open in 2003. John McEnroe would never have had that match in 1980 against Bjorn Borg. You're trying to remove some of the most exciting moments in tennis history, Ben, for the future. <laughs> How do you feel about that? I feel fine about that. I don't think that I'm removing anything. What I'm not removing is those thrilling fifth sets, I mean, that... Alan Alley had was a fifth set, McEnroe was a fourth set. I'm getting rid of the first two sets and moving the exciting part up by two hours in the match. There's so much filler at the beginning of a match, and when somebody comes out and wins a first set, the best of five doesn't really mean anything. You sat there for an hour, you watched like the French Open this year, Cole Schreiber took the first set off Djokovic. Nobody cared. Everyone knew that Djokovic was still going to get through that match. There wasn't any reason for upset or alert, and so much of the match becomes irrelevant, excess fat at the beginning. Why not trim it down, get to the important stuff quicker? But the problem is, you, you suggested this, Ben, during a match in which Tommy Haas went five from two sets down. So mm-hmm. that would have been a regulation straight sets victory. It became a classic. See, I, don't, I don't necessarily buy that. I don't think that matches would be exactly the same if, they, if you move the finish line. I think players will play differently in different formats. And I don't think that every match where someone wins the first two, they would have always won the first two if it was a best of three. I think especially with top players at Grand Slams, there's a lot of managing themselves physically. To peak at the right Isn't that times. the fun, though? Isn't it the fun to sort of see players have to go through that marathon, have to put themselves through it, have to find a way to manage their resources so that they don't just have a sprint, they don't just go for the finish line. They're trying to think. You know, I, I always remember my first tennis experience where I decided I wanted to be involved in tennis was Jimmy Connors in 1991 with that incredible run yeah. to the semifinals, and he was playing against Aaron Krikstein. He was throwing sets in that match yeah. in order to conserve his energy for the fifth set. But it was theatre. You're removing all that, Ben. It's theater with intermissions. If you're throwing sets, I don't know if it, we really. But need you don't. That you don't. You don't want just full throttle all the time, do you? You want to. Ha- you want to have ebbs and flows in matches. I love the fact that in tennis, that you have a, a set one, and then you think, "Oh, right, the momentum's with him. That's the way it's going to go." But it doesn't. It changes. Well, you still have that in best of three, and it just gets rid of some of the stale parts of the match. I really do think that it's a bit of a quality over quantity thing. 
I mean, best of five matches aren't inherently better just because they're longer. I mean, you have movies that aren't better because they're longer, books that aren't better because they're longer, YouTube videos, some of the most popular ones are 30 seconds long. I mean, these it's not about equating length and enjoyability all the time. And it also, just with how physical the game is getting, best of five matches are much longer than they used to be. Even those Connors Crickstein ones don't hold a candle to uh, the sort of Nadal Djokovic 2012 Australia Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I would agree with you. I think that the physicality of, of, of the game now, and, and also... The uniformity of the service, surface speed yeah. and, 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 and that kind of thing has made for the, some of these matches like the Nadal-Djokovic-Australian Open final. And, and, and these are just ageing matches. There's only so many a, a player can have. I, I, I am with you there. Okay. But for me, that's where the, the US Open has got it right. And, and just as much as I've always been against that in principle because I like to see these ridiculous scoreline sure. in the fifth set. There's, there's something of the, the masochist in me that wants to see that. But, you know, there you get that finality, you get that that wonderful crescendo to a match, and you also get somebody who can walk off the court at the end. Yeah, but I but why not have that come earlier? I do think the the fifth set tiebreak argument that Federer was actually asked about today in his, in his press conference before Wimbledon, it's a bit of a red herring. I really think that having a match like the Isner-Haas match, we started talking about that one went 9-7 or 10-8 in the fifth, I believe. And the commentators on NBC, uh, John McEnroe and Mary Carrillo, were calling it in the States. They are talking about how this format's killing the guys. Look at them out there. They're dying. And really, those extra six games only added about an extra 15, 20 minutes to the match. That's really not where the real quality or the real grueling, damaging nature of best of five comes in at all at the end. It's in the middle. It's in those third and fourth sets where they really are killing themselves. So I think the Olympic format that they had, best of three, play out the last, led to some really pretty great matches. They had all the drama in half the time. I, I agree with you that there were certainly some some crackers at the Olympics and that and that, you know, did provide some some great moments. But I also think that, that players who put themselves through it in the off season are rewarded for that effort and, and if they play best of five and you see somebody who's who's gone that extra mile isn't that something that should be celebrated I've had enough of that honestly I mean I don't need to see ones where it's just whichever guy breaks down in cramps or you know physically just collapses I like tennis more for the skill involved and the strategy it's just both of us standing out here playing tug of war arm wrestling or some fit you know competition of brute strength yeah, that's not what tennis is to me. I enjoy the guys who are, you know, the littler guys that, I don't know, not that I'm a huge fan of his tennis necessarily, but like seeing that a Gilles Simone can go out there and win a tennis match being this sort of wave of a person against someone like a big, strong uh, David Ferrer. Not that he's big, but he's a strong guy. So I don't. I think there should be talent rewarded just as much as endurance. It, I think ben, we've reached a peak of let's, let's put it this way. This is your proposal now. But if you were asked, right, we're going to go best of three and we're yep. going to play out that third set – and that means that every match in history has to go that format as well. So we're going to lose all those classic five-setters. Are you still happy with your argument? Are you, are you prepared to lose Borg McEnroe 1980? Are you prepared to lose all of these one? Look at the Nadal-Federer, Wimbledon final yeah. 2008, the greatest match of all time, the greatest. Absolutely nobody will argue with that. It would have been over in two hours. Yeah, but, I mean, you take you lose some good. And I still, first of all, contend that best of three cuts out the first and second sets, not the fourth and fifth. Fourth, that's a little bit of a semantic argument there. But you you lose some good matches, I admit, but you gain so much time wasted on pretty terrible matches. There was no time wasted in that Nadal-Federer match in, no. in 2008. So, okay, Come if you want to have a Grand Slam finals with best of five just to, you know, have a finality to the event the way they had the Olympics, too. What about we I'm start okay at the quarterfinals? That. That's also a start. 
I'm willing to negotiate on this. So if we play the first four rounds, maybe best of three tie- without a tiebreak in the third, and then bring it in the quarterfinals, what do you think, tennis podcast listeners? What do you say, Ben? I say that's fine. I would still obviously love to be the whole way through. Um, but I, like I said, I'm willing to compromise one list of things. One thing I will say, I think maybe you'll agree with this, the first thing we can get rid of best of five at is Davis Cup. Don't need a Davis Cup at all. Makes it much harder for players to commit. And it's really impossible to televise having back-to-back five-set matches, which can go huge range of lengths there. Having two, it can go six sets, go ten sets. And Davis Cup is something struggling for publicity. Why not make it a much more TV-friendly? Yeah, event? I know where you're coming from there. At the same time, I, I just love what that gives to, to Davis Cup. But I think their problem is a wider one. I think that they need to sort out the format more more generally and actually um, just change it completely, don't you? Well, it would, but I do think that players like an Andy Murray, who has been pretty reluctant to play for Britain in recent years, would be much more likely if he wasn't signing up for best of five in the middle of the season. It's a draining weekend, and it's somewhere an undesirable location as is best of five. I think it's maybe especially in the lower tier groups like the ones Britain is in now. Seems like a really lower tier. Thing. Hold on a minute. We're on the verge of the world group here. Well, you're moving up. You're still down there, but you're moving. I, I give you credit for <laughs> some heading the right direction but for now it hasn't been world group for a while for britain yeah no that's true uh I, you'll notice uh, listeners that Catherine isn't part of this debate uh, i didn't want to let her in the same room as ben on this argument <laughs> because she was going to lose it um so we'll hear we, we you've already heard what she thinks on the subject just to, just to get on to, to the tournament here ben seeing as we have you with us here on the tennis podcast just a reminder, everybody, Ben has his own tennis podcast called the No Challenges Remaining podcast, correct, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I think you've just uh, released episode 44 of your own. 44 is correct. Yeah, very good. Oh, yeah. See, cross-promotion. <laughs> we're, not, we're not afraid to do a bit of that here. And, uh, and so go and download that as well after you've heard this one. Uh, now, what do you think of this draw at the moment, Ben? We've got this very unusual circumstance of, of having one of the big four not seeded inside the top four. And it does throw the cat amongst the pigeons a little bit. It does very much. First of all, it's good for people who are buying court one tickets for the first week on Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. They know they're going to get one of these big four guys out there. Uh, Nadal got put out there for the first day. So I think that's good bet for them. But yeah, I I believe that Nadal's seeding should have been bumped. I think it's just reasonable. I think the seeding should reflect not what you've earned, but what you're expected to do. And then there's a distinction there. And so I think that it all should have been given the fourth seed at least. I mean, you can make an argument for him to be higher. He's number one right now in the 2013 race rankings. So he's already clinched his spot in the World Tour Finals as early in the year as it is. So really, he's the player to beat in a lot of ways this year in tennis. Grass is not his best surface. So maybe Djokovic is a favorite for this one event. But yeah, absolutely. Nadal. Who's your pick? My pick? Oof. I don't know how to make well, that. We do predictions on this okay. tennis podcast. I'm not sure what you do, but we just throw ourselves out on a yeah, limb and we don't look, care. I'll pick Djokovic just because of the half he's on. He's, I mean, the other ones have such a tougher road to the final. Odds on favorite should be Djokovic because he really does have a pretty soft draw to get to the final two, and that makes his odds much better. So I'll go Djokovic looking at it that way. And on the women's side, women's uh, side. can you see beyond Serena? Even even amidst the spat, is that going to create <laughs> any, any sort of... Uh, difficulties for her that she's having this row publicly with Maria Sharapova which we're all enjoying so much I, it is enjoyable I don't I don't think it's going to affect her on court too much no she's got a pretty nice early draw at this tournament a cup, tough second round potentially against Zhang Zhe but she's played well against her and I think she's just an unstoppable force early on the tournament and by the time she gets to the big players later on uh, she should be in such good form that she'll coast through anybody 
from the outside that you think could make a name for themselves at this tournament? One on the men's side, one on the women's side. You you, you were at the qualifying, weren't you? Yeah, you, I was. Were, you were at qualifying, which is always a, an interesting insight, isn't it, to, to who's doing what and where maybe somebody might come through with some form. It has been, although I've gotten burned in the past on reading too much into someone who did well at qualifying, thinking they would do well. I remember in Australia, Adrian Manorino tore through the qualifying draw. I was like, oh, this guy's going to do big things in the main draw. He got Del Potro first round. Oh, he can beat Del Potro. He won like four games or something. <laughs> so I I'm, I'm, I have to be careful to you know take that quality's results with a grain of salt. Um, in terms of who can do well, be a surprise that this tournament, men's side, I'll pick Cole Schreiber. He's in the Ferrer quarter, which is really the place to be at this tournament. I think he has a pretty good shot at making the semifinals. Uh, him, possibly Nishikori, possibly, possibly Dimitrov, possibly Ferrer, I guess. But that's really the place you want to be. So I think Cole Schreiber is sort of my surprise. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tie break, or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Deep run guy who's no one's really talking about. Women's side, a little bit tougher to say. I think that most for the most part, top three seeds anyway will hold. And then that second quarter with... Radvanska and Lena, neither of them are playing very well right now. So could be some room for someone there, but only time will tell. Well, indeed. Uh, have you ever heard of Kyle Edmund? I have heard of Kyle Edmund. <laughs> he's, he's our big hope, you know. And, and he's now? playing against Yurtsy Janowicz in the first round. I reckon there might be an upset there. What do you think? It could. Yurtsy lost first round in Hala. I was there to a lucky loser named Mirza Basic. Basic. So he was uh, not in his best form. He's having some elbow problems lately, Janowitz. So he uh, he's not a bad seed to draw for Kyle Edmund. I don't know anything about Kyle Edmund. I won't pretend to. He's really good. Okay, he's really good. He sounds like quite the hope for you guys. And so maybe you'll get a second guy in the top 200 soon. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Ben... Great to have you with us here Thanks on the Tennis Podcast. You are here writing as well for the New York Times. Yes, that's right. Writing on the New York Times online and print, trade sets blog and website. So 
people can check it out yeah yeah go and check that out uh great to have you with us and we'll we'll speak to you again i hope again soon definitely thanks for having me well that's ben uh, rothenberg from the new york times uh, speaking to us here on the tennis podcast and now we've got a very very special guest he will be present with us on bbc radio five live throughout the fortnight covering the wimbledon championships none other than mr nick bolottieri well, always a pleasure to come to any tennis tournament and come across Nick Bolletieri. I had that pleasure earlier this week, Nick, and I, I think I left you uh, after a two-minute chat and I felt like somebody had plugged me into the electricity of the stadium. I felt so good. How do you do this? You're in your 80s and yet you seem to be the most energetic person here. It's a habit that was created when I lived in my grandmother's house. It was a happy house. My grandmother used to call me Sonny be happy. And that's the way she demanded it. She didn't ask of it. And uh, that's made me the guy who I am today. And uh, it's really amazing going back in my life uh, and, and thinking of the things that I did and what impacted me and falling down many times and how I got back up. And, you know, talking about myself, it, it's actually, I, I can visualize and see me stomping in the basement of the of my grandfather's house on the grapes. That's how we used to crush the grapes. I, I can see all the rooms. I can see my big uncles. When one time I came home and had a bloody nose, and my uncle said, Nick, what happened? This big guy punched me. What did you do? I said, I ran. My uncle said, this is what you do tomorrow. You go up to that guy, punch him, and then you run. And <laughs> I'm still running. <laughs> so those are the stories that I'm going to bring out and how I was able to communicate with people take advantage of everybody that I met, and also doing things that people said, Nick can't do them. You know, that was my energy. Nick can't do this. Uh, the academy, the first built-in academy of the world, it'll never happen. So actually when people say to me, Nick, you can't do it, I actually turn myself on to do it, and that's the way, that's the best way to stick it to them, is to do those things. And I also, you know, as I look back, I was, all the, I was the smallest guy, but I was sort of the leader. So I remained that way all my life, to try to be the leader, but lead by example, not by words, and, and to try to give everybody hope. And that no matter where you come from, no matter what the financial background is, those are the cards you're dealt with, make a winning hand. And that's what I've tried to do all my life. And, of course, you, you're having to go through this process now of – retracing those early steps of your life aren't you because you're starting to to write your book the story of your life that that must be an interesting experience to go through such a long and and varied life and then begin to document it well you know my assistant tim westerfeld said how do you remember these things you know my present wife my eighth wife said to me you don't even remember the names of your eight wives you know why i didn't care about that just moved on but the things that meant something to me, the lessons that I learned, my father saying to me, Nick, tell the truth. He had a brand new Buick, and he said, son, take a ride. I went for a ride, saw the girl I was going with in high school getting into another car. I spun around in the snow and ice trying to catch up to the car, ended up on the property of a lady, smashed the car in, got home. She took my license plate. My uncles were the cops called my father, and my father said, Nick, son, what happened? Dad, you'll never believe it. I was at a basketball game, and my buddy and I, Richie, came out of the game, and someone hit the car. 
Dad, I'm sorry. That's all right, son. Just tell me that story again. He moved a little closer. My buddy moved a little farther away. Pow. The only time my father popped me, and he said, son, tell the truth. And in the long run, if you tell the truth, you'll come out ahead, and that's the lesson I learned. So I'm going to talk about the lessons that I've learned. And, and you, you mentioned telling the truth. I suppose when you're dealing with some of the characters you've dealt with in tennis, some of the biggest names that we've ever seen, Andre Agassi, Boris Becker, big personalities, telling them the truth must be a challenge in itself. Well, you know, a lot of times what I did, I made adjustments in telling them the truth. With Agassi, I was very careful, and with Becker. Now, with a guy like Jim Curry or Monica Sellis, you can go right to it. But by telling a little bit here and a little bit there, I told them the truth without them even knowing it, and they accepted. So that was a trick to see big Boris Becker looking at me and Andre Agassi with his pigeon-toed looking at me. So I learned how to communicate with them, but telling the truth is the way to go. Maybe not just one blast, but eventually you get to the truth. And those are the things I've learned dealing with thousands of people. Well, when was the first time you thought or you saw your capacity to teach and, and want to teach tennis? Well, you know, I, I believe a lot of it came when it was in a paratroopers uh, of, of being with people that really wanted to be in that particular type of outfit. And when I first started teaching tennis, I didn't know one end of a racket from another, but I was attending the University of Miami Law School, and I had to make money to put gas in the car. And my uncle and the water commissioner, Sapiti Di Flippo, they sort of ran the town as you get the end of that. It's all Italians. And there were two tennis courts belonging to the city. So I said to Heckwood, I knew a little bit about tennis, just a little bit. I began teaching at two broken-down courts, $3 an hour, and somebody asked me, Nick, tell me about how you get into a forehand grip. My son's mother ran down the street and asked the father of all coaches, Slim Harpet, what, how do you do it? You shake hands, put the V here. I knew nothing. Slowly but surely, I began learning a little bit about the game, but God gave me the gift to communicate, to look at somebody and know how to talk to them and make them feel that they can do things. And slowly but surely, things began to get a lot better, and I began to understand the game. And my career, I worked at municipalities and got a big break in working for the Rockefellers. And then, of course, I started camps. And then eventually, Vince Lombardi, the, the great tennis, the great football coach, said, Nick, you belong with children. So I started that. And then eventually, I went to... Uh, Sarasota, Florida, Bradenton, and started the first living academy that was talked about on 60 Minutes. And they said, this man is crazy. You have to be crazy to do something that nobody else said you could do. And that's what divides the men from the leaders, is doing things that people say you can't do, but willing to take the consequences, the ups and downs and the criticisms. And fortunately, my parents, my daddy gave me the courage to be able to withstand the ups and downs. I suppose it's a similar situation to what Richard Williams found himself in, in that he, I saw him on a documentary recently from back then when he was with his two young girls and saying, these two are going to be Grand Slam champions. It sounded ridiculous. He did it. Richard Williams and I are like blood brothers. I just saw Richard yesterday. He always came to the academy to get to free breakfast. And last year at Wimbledon, he was coming down the stairs and he said, Nick, I have a complaint. 
I said, Richard, what did I do? He said, my daughter said, you're a second father. I want to make sure you're not the first father. <laughs> but Serena and Venus were unbelievable because their daddy came up with a concept that very few people have done, not having them playing tournaments early on. He predicted what they would do. He gave them support. But once they left the tennis courts, never, never talk about tennis. So one time they're coming home and Venus talked about tennis. They stopped at a drugstore near their home. Said, Venus, go in and get me something. She came out, he opened up the window, he said, Venus, you talked about tennis, you're walking home. And remember, they all said that Richard Williams was crazy, didn't know his fanny from his elbow in tennis. Look what happened. And he said, Nick, you are outstanding with my girls. Whenever I was interviewed, they said, Nick, are you the coach? No way. I'm part of the Williams team. And that's why I've always been part of the Williams team. Do you think it's, in many ways, the most incredible story that tennis has ever known? The fact that these two sisters came from where they did with, with those sort of predictions from their father and created the champions that they are. And here we are. 15, 17 years on, and they're still at the top of the game. Serena Williams is world number one. It is, it's almost unbelievable. It is unbelievable, but there's something that's very important. The father and the mother are seen, dedicated their lives, and Richard never faltered from the concept that he had. When we come out, we'll come out fighting, and that's exactly what they did. He also said an interesting comment to me one time. He said, Nick, before the actual match, my daughters will play a practice match. I said, why so, Richard? He said, if you go to a boxing arena, the boxers in the locker room go through an actual, they come out sweating. Why so, Richard? One punch and you're out. My daughters come out and ready to go. And it's an unbelievable story that these girls in their 30s worth millions of dollars, still get out and compete. And that's unbelievable. And they've all had their ups and downs with health. Richard is a character, saw me, yes, he said, Nick, I'm coming back to the academy for my free breakfast. <laughs> but he's a tremendous man. But he was a father and a coach. And never once, but he was also bright enough to get other people that were qualified to help him take the girls where they are today. Sue Barker was telling me the other day that she said Martina would hate me for saying this, but Serena is the greatest ever. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. To see what she's come through, almost dying, gets out there, stands on that baseline, she's a powerhouse. And remember, Martina and a few others were fantastic too. Nobody's done what she's done. Break the sound barrier on the serve. Come in hitting those swinging volleys. Almost intimidating you on the other side of the court. And by the way, very good doubles players as well. And why? You see two giants on the other side. I remember out in Palm Springs many years ago, they were playing a match. And these ladies would say, oh, no, no, that, that's unfair. You know, they, they must eat differently. Look how big they are. And I turned around and I said, lady, you're out of line. Those girls have been trained that way. And what they do, they do it legitimately. And the lady said, I'm sorry. I said, that's okay. 
You know why? When the other girls playing doubles saw Venus and Serena the other side, they didn't stay up to net, brother. They stayed back at the baseline, one swing and volley. They were ready to put up the white flag. <laughs> I suppose, Nick, uh, anybody who thinks Nick Bollettieri immediately probably thinks Andre Agassi because you're so linked over the years. What do you remember about the first time you, you, you came across him? Well, the first time I came across him, it was his pigeon toad, you know, and, and his hair and, and his, how he looked. Uh, Jim Currier and even Pete Sampras. And if you, Nick, you should have thrown him out a million times. Broke all the rules, brother, all the rules, the dress code, how he, how he operated. But I saw something special in Andre Agassi, and God gave me that gift to stay with him. And I stayed with him, and look what he's doing today with his foundation. He brought a lot of zip to the game of tennis. He brought color and charisma. I remember when the old ladies over there in Wimbledon were buying him denim shorts. And the first time we went to Wimbledon, we sat on the death court, number two, and we played Lacan. I didn't even sit down, and the match was over. And Andre said, this place is for cows to eat the grass. We didn't come back for years. And then, of course, when we came back and won Wimbledon, he said he'd been practicing for two, three weeks. We practiced for one hour before we came. He was in, we were in West Palm Beach playing golf. And he said, Nick, we better hit for one hour. So him and Goose Saguso, we hit for one hour, came, we gave a clinic in the department store, and they said, Andre, where you been? I've been practicing for two weeks. And he looked at me. Agassi was a character. But it was sort of in the cards that he and Stephanie would match up. Why? He can't compete with her record. So they didn't compete against each other, which was very, very important. Very proud of Andre Agassi. Yeah, because, I mean, when he won it in 92, I mean, she also won the title that year as well. But when he won it, that was unheard of, wasn't it, for a player in the era of Ivan Izovic, who he beat in the final, his serve, and Sampras, and these massive servers on a on a lightning fast grass court to play from the baseline it was it seemed almost absurd it was absurd in you know that picture of when he went to the ground on his knees but you remember the second week of Wimbledon gives a baseline more of a chance the first week was the week that you feared but to see him go down on his knees and win that match and Goran missed that easy volley up above it, it was something that I will always remember for the rest of my life when you've got a guy like Agassi with his style and then you've got somebody like Becker with a completely different style, how do you as coach deal with that? Because I suppose that there's a view that a Nick Bollettieri Academy player has a certain style. Well, obviously they don't and, 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 and you know Boris came to you a little later and he'd already developed, but different players have different styles. So how do you deal with it as a coach? That's a sign of a successful coach, not only in sports but in business is to learn the idiosyncrasies of what you're trying to do, whether it's with a human being or, or do it manufacturing a car or selling whatever it may be. With Boris, the first two weeks, I never said a word, and he turned around, we're outside of Munich, he said, Mr. B, can you speak? I said, Mr. B, when I speak to you, I better know what I'm talking about. He said, Mr. B, we're going to get along very well. Now, here I am. I'm intimidated by Boris Becker. I had to be very careful. So when I said things, I had to make sure they were little things, not making a change, slowly but surely, 
we developed a great rapport. I just wonder. I mean, you've seen all of these players now throughout the throughout the eras. Roger Federer is probably the most recent of the champions who people look at as as the greatest. But we've got now I think the card is still on the table. If Djokovic continues doing what he does and come back and or maintain what he's doing and win several more Grand Slams, he has to be right in there. Now, Nadal is sort of angry in a way. Um, can he fit into that? I don't know whether he can fit it into the number one, two, or three, but any time he's on the other side of the court, be careful. Roger Federer is a genius. He's a genius. He does things that a coach cannot teach. That's why my Paul Anacone, who's, who's there now with him, He's a very simple guy. He says very, very little. But Federer does things that you cannot teach. So if you try to teach those things to him, you would hurt him. It's kind of interesting because now we have our Murray coming up, and, you know, he's broken the ice, and he's a tough contender. And, you know, he's come from nowhere, a lot of pressure on his back. Whether or not he'll ever be considered in that group, is hard to say. But right now, you know, you even have Sampras, who, who is a fantastic player. But right now, it looks like the edge goes to Federer. But Djokovic is right behind him. Just And on the women's side, I mean, we've spoken about Steffi Graf there. Monica Seles was probably on her way to being part of the conversation about being the greatest ever, wasn't she, before what happened to her? There's no question about it. You know, when I brought Monica to America at 11 years old, I brought her whole family. You know, people thought I was crazy, and I predicted that she would be number one to my very close friend, Mr. Marks, who lent me the million dollars to build the academy. He said, how can you say that that skinny blink, even Dick Vitale, the famous commentator, was mad I didn't give his two daughters the time I gave this skinny girl? And I said, Dick, this girl's going to be number one in the world. She had things that are impossible to teach. She was unorthodox, not big and strong, stood on a baseline, but her mentality was unbelievable. She would stay for hours and hours and hours to master one shot. She actually cost me three wives. I would stay until 10, 11 o'clock at night. That's what made Monica sell it. I must compliment Monica Sellers that even today when you interview her, there is no anger, no anger about what happened. She's moved on. Could she have been the greatest? Certainly would have to be considered to be one of the greatest ever because of her discipline, her discipline. But she stood close to the baseline. If she had moved back behind the baseline, she became a good player. By the way, Serena, when she's 8 to 10 feet behind the baseline, she becomes a good player. And, by the way, a few weeks ago, Murray played Del Portro. Look where he stood. 8 to 10 feet behind the baseline. He got beat. And I'm sure Mr. Lendl had something to say about that. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he did. The final person I want to speak about is Maria Sharapova, who's another player who came uh, into your academy at a very early age. What do you remember about that? 
the minute she came there, you know, she was so thin that if the wind blowed, she would have blown it right down. She had something in her eyes that every time she struck a ball, it was to be a winner. At the time she was there, Jelena Yankovic and Tatiana Gullivan from France, who came down with a blood disease, and Maria. Maria intimidated those girls. She scared them to death. Today, notice when Maria crosses the net, if the opponent falls down, she'll step right over them. She will not take an extra step. She's a competitor. She is a competitor. And she refuses to go down no matter what the score is. And she's come through some injuries. She knows only one way to play. Hit the ball, quick rallies, I'm going to beat you. The WTA have, have, have made some attempts to, to try to get the next generation to play without making the sort of sounds that Maria Sharapova and Victoria Azarenka make. What do you think about that? Well, I was under the gun because, you know, I've been accused, and uh, I had a very famous lawyer, Nick Bollettieri, defend himself. Uh, you know, Monica Seller started it, and my Maria Sharapova, and so forth and so on. Uh, Serena's certainly not quiet, but look at a lot of the men as well. Uh, this is a question that's going to go on and on. Um, I know that the WTA had me talk about this. I believe that it has to come from the very beginning when kids are playing at 10, 11, and 12, and 13 years old for them to start curbing it down. Remember, if you don't breathe out, you become very tense and you become very tired and you lose flexibility. Has it become outlandish? Absolutely. But you know something. If you look at basketball, the sirens are going. You look at the Davis Cup, this is going, that's going. Hey, for what these people are making out there, concentrate on the Don tennis ball. Do I condone it? I'm taking the Fifth Amendment, as a famous Italian always will do. <laughs> Nick, pleasure as always. We can't wait till you see your book. All right. Thank you, everybody. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.